The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Episode number... I... 211? No. Thank you. Did I do it right? It's embarrassing sometimes when <laughs> you get that wrong because then people are like, how are you running a show where you don't even know which one it is? Because it's not about the number. It's about our guest stories. That's true. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's good. That's real deep. And our guest this week uh, comes highly recommended, a, a podcaster, a, a co-pastor, an author, and he also has doctor in front of his name, which already makes mm-hmm. him way smarter than the both of us. Yeah. Dr. Doug Burst, my friend, how are you? I'm good. And thanks for that short introduction. Although once you put doctor there and some people are like, oh, sure. Yeah. No, it's a doctor of theology, so I cannot cure you of any ailments. We'll see. I do have a rash. I'll show you later. Uh, well, like you know, that. unclean rashes in Leviticus. I know a little bit about that. So we'll see <laughs> if it's clean or unclean. I knew you'd be able to help me. Uh, we like to ask this skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Doug, who are you and where did you come from? Uh, I'm a middle class white male, which means I have lots of opinions and I think everyone should listen to me. But over time, I've realized that's probably not wise. That Maybe I, I'm not the center of the world that other people need to be listened to. So that's something I'm still learning to do. Although I love being guest on podcasts because then people ask me questions. I become an expert. Yeah. You know, I got four kids, uh, a a lovely wife. Uh, I've been pastoring the same church for 22 years. And then I do a bunch of other stuff. Just uh, I call it evangelism. Not that I'm doing altar calls or something, but it's just outside the church walls. It's writing books, doing podcasts, radio stuff. That's just kind of that other part of me that doesn't really fit into a box. That's good because there's so many people who need to hear from people who aren't fitting into boxes. We kind of live in that day and age where people are really uh, wrestling with their faith and wanting to know what's real and what's not real. In fact, people who pretend they're in the box, they're not any, you know, they're different regardless. They're not what they proclaim to be. I think there's a multitude of people to reach. And so uh, ministry should be as diverse as the individuals that exist on the planet. Was faith always a big part of your life from day one? You were born in the church and went Wednesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, Sundays. Oh, and don't forget. Yeah, they were, group. <laughs> <laughs> they were wise men at my birth. You know, there Perfect. was a star. No, it's I, I, I don't know a day outside of God's presence. And I don't say that flippantly. Like, that's my testimony. Um, mm. As early as I could say Jesus, I said yes to Jesus. And there's complications in that when you're raised in a good home as much as when you're raised in a bad home. And so I really was raised in a home where the spirit was different. It felt to me more loving, kind and gentle. It wasn't full of a bunch of laws and rules and regulations. And so Christ just became very attractive to me. And then, of course, you know, growing up in that environment, I think I recommitted myself to Christ like a thousand times, depending Mm -hmm. upon who came to the church. What Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case, raise my hand, you know. But, uh, and and that was just on my heart. I knew I always wanted to do something for the Lord, whether it be in the capacity of a minister or lawyer, or I don't know. I just knew that that is a part of my life. So yeah, faith has been pretty strong in my life. So you graduated high school then, because I mean, you wear so many hats, as we had mentioned, was radio the thing? Was pasteurizing somebody the thing? Where did you feel that your heart was being led? Oh, I love that pasteurizing, by the way. That would be cool. It'd be also cool if I could do that. I, they talk about pastors having control. I'm like, I got control over no one. Who are these people? I can't I can't get them to do anything, like maybe show up a couple Sundays. But I, I think for me, um, I remember being at a, a Christian concert. Now, this is going to show how old I am. There's this group called Mylon Lefevre, which was just ridiculous rock group, bunch of long-haired dudes. And this guy's singing a song about, 
tonight could be the night you could see the light and you could trade your worst and for his best. And I swear, I just, at that moment, I was like, you know, if these clouds opened up, I'm ready. I, I want to be about God's kingdom. And then I didn't know how, like, what does that mean? Cause once you become a pastor, it does close doors for you. Like you tell someone you're a pastor and they go, Oh, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And so I, I didn't know how that calling would be. And my dad was a teacher and I saw him as one of the most wise people I ever met. So I knew you didn't have to be a pastor to somehow have more impact. But then that was a process, you know, then I just kind of, I got a history degree, no jobs in history. <laughs> so then it was, what's the next step? I worked at a, a, an internet company startup that could make millions of dollars. And at that company, I suddenly realized, you know, I don't want to just work for money. I need to have a calling that's you know, something more substantive. So that's when I went into the ministry, went to seminary and then did all that good stuff. That's how we got into Christian radio. And then we thought, wait a second. <laughs> we obviously didn't do it for the money. We didn't do it for the money. I felt people would ask you, how do you get into radio? And you're like, you don't, you know, you just don't do it. Uh, that's a miracle for me because I, 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 well, this is, I don't, can I talk about a low point? Here's one of those, mm -hmm. those low points for me. I've been pastoring a church that we started and we were just a tiny church. And guess what? We're still a tiny church, which I just call a normal size church. But I remember it was probably after nine years pastoring there, we'd had a, some sort of gathering and not many people showed up. And afterwards I was just angry at God. And I, I was just mad. And I just, why would you give me these desires in my heart and give me a church that's so small? There's cults that are bigger than our church. There's cults that believe in, they worship a goat uh, that sits on a mountain. And there's more people who believe in that <laughs> than what we're doing. And I was angry at God because I had all these desires in my heart. And I thought I had this naivete. You know, this is how pastors gain influence. First, you grow a large congregation. And then from that large congregation, it gives you authority to speak, to write a book, to do these things outside the church. And I had bought into that lie. And I remember arguing with God, like, why would you put these desires in my heart and then allow me to be so unsuccessful? And I know all these terms are not good terms. I, I could talk to that younger self and say, you don't know what success is. You don't know what the church is, you know. But right. at the time, I bought into that lie. And I felt like the Lord just said to me, who told you that? Who told you you had to do all these things to do the next thing? And that was a strong commitment in my life because then I just decided, you know what? If it's in my heart, I'm going to do it. And even if others call me a fool, they say, what are you, you know, what are you doing radio? Because then I just started trying to do radio. I had a show on Saturdays. I found a way to guest host for other talk shows. And But I just thought instead of waiting for some power dynamic to justify my life, I'm just going to do it by faith, which I think is biblical, you know, the spirit leading by faith, not by power or might. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of freed me up to pursue all these other things. And that's a big part of my testimony because I see a lot of people waiting. They're waiting for something to change, you know, more money, more power, more influence, others to root them on. And I think you guys know this, that if you wait for other people, you're just going to be stuck. That ultimately you just kind of have to move forward with what's on your heart. A few weeks ago, we had a chance to talk um, with uh, Ben Kirby, who does uh, Preachers and Sneakers. Mm, and, yes. and it's all these... you know. The, Nowadays, do you find or is it uh, is there more pressure on a pastor because there are so many ways to connect and there's so many ways to hear from said pastor? You had said, I'm from a small church, which is air quote, a normal church. But it seems like uh, a lot of times we're only hearing from the pastors of these mega churches. Well, that's the whole issue of how we view the church, isn't it? It's, it's become very skewed. You know, someone's first interaction with the church really becomes what they view the church to be. And any pastor has to actually convince the person that there's something other than what they think you are. Like no one comes in just neutral. 
And uh, that pastors with sneakers thing, I joke with that. My sneakers are Kirkland brand, you know, Costco, <laughs> yes. cheapest pair. Yeah. I mistakenly bought some Skechers and those are old man shoes. You don't even tie yeah. them up. And I was like, these are comfortable. I'm going to stick with those. So yeah. I have never won anyone over through my branding and I'm ignorant on those branding, but there's other areas where my ego gets in the way. I think what's happening with mega churches is, uh, you know, they kind of set the agenda. They, 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 they make the water and the climate a certain way that people will say these sweeping statements. I see this like with Southern Baptist, you know, Southern Baptist, largest denomination in uh, the U.S. And so a lot of people come out of the Southern Baptist will use these terms like all churches and the church and mm. these negative things. Now, there's a lot of churches doing a lot of lousy things, so I'm not going to tone police them. But it's hard to convince them, you know, your world was not the only world. There were Episcopalians and Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Pentecostals. And even within those groups, there's a great diversity within those denominations. And when you're a smaller church, it's hard to be seen because you are, you're just kind of this, this idea. And we live in a segmented world. That's why I talk about my book, Posting Pieces. We're more and more segmented where we segment people into these categories and live in these categories that as a pastor, immediately you can be segmented. Uh, you're the power-hungry, money-hungry abuse guy. And you're like, well, if you're a bivocational pastor who's barely making it financially, has 50 people, that's not who you are. You might still be a jerk. You might still be a narcissist, but you're a different kind of narcissist. So <laughs> those distinctives are not drawn, right? We just kind of go in one direction or the other. Uh, so for me, it's I have to take time uh, to be able to have people know me, to trust me. And that might never happen. Like if they had a pastor abuse them or a parent or authority figure, they might never trust me. And it's not my right to demand their trust. I just have to assume my job is to love them and give grace and kindness and assume I have no expectations, but this is a privilege to be able to speak into their life. I love that how you talk about the segmentation, not because I love segmentation, but because we've talked about it a lot, uh, you know, off air, how there's really on social media, these uh, microchasms where, you know, oh, you like this. And then all of a sudden, all the ads and all the conversations really support that viewpoint, whether it's right or wrong. And so you believe your viewpoint is the absolute truth because, well, everyone else believes me. How have you seen that impact the church as a whole? Yeah. Well, by the way, I'm, I'm legally required to say the name of my book four times because I'm a struggling author. So in my book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It, I talk about this. And we all know, I think a lot of us know, certainly the technology is segmenting us itself, right? People who listen to this movie also listen to that movie. And so right. it's Amazon and others are sending us in those directions. Uh, but we're also doing our own segmenting. Uh, the internet has become a place where we we use we do a lot of networked individualism. Uh, Rainey and Wellman, two scholars, talked about that the strength of the internet. Now they saw this more as a strength. I see a little bit as a weakness. Hmm. Is that we can take our individual needs and we can network with people to meet our individual needs. Now that is a strength in the sense of you know I can unite with other people who've been abused. I can unite with other people who have the same views of Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever. So there's a strength in that networked individualism. But what happens is we begin to unite with people as much as they serve our personal needs, as much as they meet what we want. So that individualistic need, and then we can segment ourselves. And that's really how the segmenting occurs, that we just abide with people who confirm what we want, you know, confirmation bias, our politics, our view of the world. Uh, but what it happens is it narrows us. It doesn't allow us to be in diverse communities that broaden or expand our understanding. As a Christian, and I think it would isolate us from the ability to witness to others who might be in the mm. dark. Uh, so that segmenting is happening at a, you know, just a technological level. 
And then we're also embracing that. And because we don't have to deal with difficult people, we just mute them, block them, fade away and, and stick out in our isolated, you know, ideological bubbles. But people who are in those bubbles also realize that when a conflict arises, what happens? No one knows how to deal with conflict because we're all in this room because we agree about the same thing. And some those things are fractured. So we've seen that fractured in progressive groups. We've seen it fractured in ex-evangelical groups that the ability to exist with diverse community is one of the hardest things to do when a technology is segmenting us into these isolation uh, groups. I haven't followed Holly in about a year and a half. I just I, I decided to <laughs> unfollow. I was tired of her. She's so negative. Um, why do you think that, because you had mentioned that you wrote a book, apparently. Uh, what, what was it called again for the uh, third time? I, yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's, it's called Posting Peace. Why do you think that something like this was placed on your heart? That's a good question, isn't it? And I, I, I go back and forth between this. By the way, I, the biggest critic in my life is me. So I could probably write a book arguing about the book I just wrote. You know, that's <laughs> sure. kind of how I, I work. <laughs> but for me, I'm a middle child. And any middle ch- children listening, we often try to get everyone to get along. So I think there's that part of me. And it's not necessarily a positive thing. God, God can use that where... I just didn't like conflict. I was the peacemaker, tried to make everybody happy, tried to make mom and dad happy, you know, and that's just kind of how I was wired. There's also a part of me that really uh, just hurts when I see people uh, attack each other. Now, in that, I even write in the book that there's a danger that I could just be someone saying, everybody get along. We don't want conflict. And we all know that that transformation demands conflict. Uh, So the issue is, why am I having conflict? So that's been a struggle. When I went on radio, my goal was to be a a radio show. It was like five years, 1,200 shows. The goal was to make it so that Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and all these Christian groups could come together and have a civil dialogue. Uh, Now, that people didn't want that. But that I wanted that because I don't think we move ahead based on just one group somehow having the power dynamic of 50% of us can control the room, then that's what the room's going to be. And I think that came from, you know, a concept of what a healthy family is, what healthy institutions are, what healthy worlds are. So yeah, it's kind of always been there. Then I had the theology to bolster it, but which came first? Was it the theology that informed me or is it just my biological makeup that informed what I sought out in the theology? So I'd like to say it's a little of both. It's interesting because you don't often hear um, pastors talking about social media. What was it that compelled you to say, this is something that we have to have a deeper conversation about? Well, I mean, I think we're all realizing that it's just getting more and more divisive and polarizing. And I don't want to just sit around and talk about how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, in my doctoral work, I decided to study this. You know, if, if I decided to get a doctor for some reason, I just pay people to force me to read books. And so I... I I wanted something interesting and relevant. And I thought I knew the answer. Surprise, the pastor thought he knew the answer. But I, I, you know, the problem is we just need to learn a ministry of reconciliation and and peacemaking and communicate online. But what I didn't realize is how much the technology divides us. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, a technological theorist of the mid-1970s was his most popular time. He said, the medium is the message. And the concept is that the medium is actually changing the messages and changing the messengers. And that's the thing I really want us to understand, because Christians sometimes go, you know, the gospel is true. It doesn't matter whatever medium we you know, express it in, but it's actually changing depending upon if we do it through radio, do it through television, do it through the printing press, even books. If you're only getting your theology through books, uh, that medium changes the messaging. For instance, who can write a book? 
someone who's organized enough to have a beginning, a middle and an end. So who are you going to hear from? Only the people who have a certain personality to be able to finish a book. So now we've already limited the truth that's going to come through. So that medium influences the messaging. It's the same with social media and with uh, internet communication. It is polarizing us. It's dehumanizing us. It's encouraging certain expressions over other expressions. So that's why I got interested into the stuff I studied in my doctoral work. I'm like, I want other people to look at this because it really challenged me for why I communicate and what the technology is doing to me. It's actually changing me as a person. It might be a stupid question. Will we see change or do we just continually see this down, this downward spiral of social media? It depends on which day you ask me this question. <laughs> Uh, I actually have a chapter in the book where I say it's hopeless. We'll never make it. We're doomed. It's uh, from a, a, a cartoon character when I was a kid called Glum. He'd just always say, you know, it's we're doomed. I think at some level we have to take it seriously. Like this is a problem. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. Because if you don't take the problem seriously, you're not going to fight the problem. Uh, for me, I, I have to, as a believer, just live by faith and stand before the Lord and say, you know, if, even if everyone else bowed down to that idol, I didn't bow down. I might have failed. But this is the conviction of my life, that we're supposed to be reconciling agents of change. Uh, the reality is Facebook might disappear, Twitter might disappear, but we need to be educated on what technology is doing to us. Uh, you mentioned Facebook. It's fascinating. Facebook started, there's like different, you know, Facebook 1.0, 2.0. First, it started as a college, you know, app kind of thing. Yeah. Then probably the second popular area was get your friends and family on Facebook, right? And a lot of people are struggling with this tension and why they maybe like Twitter or other uh, platforms better than Facebook. So all these people you developed, you became friends with them because it's your aunt or your uncle or someone in your church. And so it's a highly relational, strong tie relationship. Then you get online and you find out that your aunt is also a crazy conspiracy theorist who has all these weird things that she never talked about at Thanksgiving. So now you're being traumatized by your aunt. It's ruining your existing relationship that you used to have with her, where you just enjoy the pie and talk about the football game. But now you can't unfriend your aunt because now you're ruining that other relational tie outside of Facebook. So what started as a way to bring us together is actually bringing us apart. And many people mm -hmm. understand that reality where now they have tension with uncles and aunts and moms and dads, and then they're blocked by family members. This thing that was supposed to bring us together because we began to communicate different things and in different ways changed our in-person relationships. And so we're seeing that progression with technology as well, that it might even start one way. But then it becomes something else. And then we're trapped in it. Like, how do I escape or extricate myself from this cousin that I would never have friended if I knew they were going to do far right, you know, white nationalist? Stuff? How do I do this instead of mute everyone and just pretend we're interacting, but I really know anyone? A whole new reason for that. It's complicated status update. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, here's the deal. There should be some ban. If you forward to me, some sort, especially on Facebook. I don't know if this is true, but, and it's just clearly not true. And it takes you five seconds to Google. It's not true. I don't understand Christians who do maybe 40 or 50 of those a year. They even find out it's not true. They go, oh, my bad. <laughs> it's like, if you do that once, you're in time out. You can't do it again for at least a year. You can't, you cannot forward. Well, I don't know for sure, but I think Biden might be putting a chip in someone. Like you can't <laughs> do that. And you can do it once wrong. Mm -hmm. But after that, like you're out. And yeah. the fact that I see Christians do this far more, they'll do it 
overly, continually. It's just a habit of, I think there's a commandment about false witness and their mm. social media presence is a false witness, but they're like, hey, you know, just in case it might be true, here's something terrible about someone I don't like. You know, So those are the kinds of things we got to deal with if we're going to be light in life uh, through social media. You would, and I mean, maybe maybe this wouldn't work then because I, I was I was thinking of this idea, and I have a lot of great ideas, and most of the time, if you ask Holly, they suck. But I thought that maybe if we just made it because everybody's a keyboard warrior, everybody's so angry all the time, but they're also at fake name, whatever it is. If we made it that social media was, you can only have one social media and it was your face for Facebook. It was your face for Instagram. It was, and you didn't have these fake accounts. Would that cause less strife? But you're saying, well, we would still have conspiracy theory anti that might not work. Well, it would deal with one form of strife. It's not going to deal with the strife that you do know the people around you and you're struggling with the fact that they're saying crazy things. Uh, yeah. But I do. An- anonymity was a big issue because, you know, the Internet was first formed by, you know, computer nerds who lived in isolation and they love that isolation. I know that's an extreme statement, but there was a certain group that formed them. And now we're trying to reform what they formed in the beginning. The one struggle I have with not allowing anonymous accounts is I found this on Twitter is there are people who deal with injustices, abuse, harm, those sorts of things who had to come in anonymous uh, to protect their own identity and well-being. Uh, so for me, I used to be more negative, like I'm out there. You can say names about me, but I don't know who you are. But I've also developed many positive relationships with people who first came onto the platform afraid, like Facebook. They've been beat up as a real person so they can put this safe shell around them to protect them from harm. Uh, now, within those groups, it's either one or the other, isn't it? Anonymous, I think, is either an angel or a demon. That's usually yeah. what I see. It's either just a you know, word from hell or an angelic visitation. So I don't know if it solves that, but definitely there has to be accountability. It's not a town hall. People go, well, this is like a town hall. In a town hall, if someone says something stupid next to you, you can punch them in the face. Now, I might not punch them in the face, but there's a threat, right? One, two. Right, there's a threat. <laughs> But online, someone can just say terrible things. There's no way to get to them, no access, no even relational proximity, accountability. Like, we're not going to your house anymore. No one's shopping Mm. at your store. So I'm for anything that humanizes the technology. And I think that's what you're saying. We have to have more ways to humanize it where I see a real human and there's real human consequences for humans that are harming others. You'd mentioned the top of the show that you are also a dad and a husband. How has your understanding now of social media impacted how you encourage your children to utilize social media? Well, this is what I find that parents do. I don't want my kids relating to social media through legalism. Uh, the more laws you make, the more you have to become a lawkeeper. And often laws are based on fear. Now I get it. There's certain boundaries, things you're trying to protect your kids from. The reality is I don't think we're going to be able to keep the darkness from coming in. Uh, for instance, like pornography, you're not going to be able to keep pornography from that's the sad reality. Your children will see that. So you need to facilitate an environment where they can talk to you the first time they see something instead of shame. What happens with laws? Like don't go there and don't do this. You, and that kind of term, you know, you never go here and I'm going to make sure this, we're going to block that. That when they find those things, then there's a lot of shame and there's hiding. So to me, it's very important that they feel comfortable talking about social media, that instead of like, you're on that phone all the time, you're going to become addicted. I'd rather have it where my kids can talk to me, say, I don't like how much time I'm spending on this phone. Then it's coming from them. And then I can have a conversation with them. Uh, So to me, we have to normalize talking about the strengths and weaknesses of social media. I think parents need to be involved. If you're going to isolate yourself, you're going to be isolated from a lot of things. 
a practical thing that I'll do is uh, like when the kids are in the car and they're, they're actually on their phone, I'll ask them questions like, who are you talking with? And I'll use those terms and they know what I'm saying. I'm just letting them know that they're making a choice to talk with someone that I can't talk to, that they're having a conversation in the car, not with me. And it's a way for them to know that's a choice they're making and they can tell me. It's not, it's literally not a manipulative thing like, oh, you got to get off your phone. It's just, they can introduce me into the conversation. They can realize, yeah, that's not that important. I can talk with dad now because we haven't seen him that much, but it's a way for them to realize that you're making a choice. Every time you make a choice to talk with someone outside the room, you're making a choice not to talk with someone inside the room. So I think those are the discussions we need to have, but then that means we can't just be fear-based. We have to really have an understanding of what is this technology doing to us? What are the strengths of it? What are the weaknesses? And then parents, you know, you keep talking about your kids, but some of you have way more problems than your kids. You're just as much on your phones and work, you know, start with your own eye before you try to navigate what's going on in your kids. Because they're in some ways able to figure out it in a more healthy way than some of the adults are. For everybody who is going to pick up the, the book, Posting Peace, by the way, just in case anybody missed Thank that. You so much. <laughs> uh, is there a... Is there one takeaway, one thing that perhaps that you learned from this that you maybe had no idea about? Well, this is the big thing that uh, I, I never thought about, but I think it's probably, I don't know, this sounds arrogant, probably the, the most important insight from the book is I tend to moralize things. And so if someone says, why do we not get along anymore or as much, or why are we divided? I'd say, because people aren't as nice and they're not as moral and ethical and they've forgotten reconciliation and it's, it's a moral thing. But I think the reason we don't get along anymore is, or as much as we don't have to. The technology has made it so we don't have to. Uh, the reality is before the internet, let's even go back before the car, because every technology changes us. Before the car, uh, what was your network of individuals you could connect with? It was very small, right? It was basically people in walking distance. It was your neighbors. Uh, it was family that lived near you. You had a very limited amount of people you could connect with. So why did people try to work through a conflict during those times? Because they had to. Because if they didn't work through the conflict with their neighbors, there was no one to talk to that week. If they didn't work through a conflict with the pastor and the church, there's only two churches and they could either go to the one church or the other church. Now there's weaknesses in that society. I'm not saying this is good or bad. It's just different because in those societies, you had people who had too much control, a pastor who could control a region because there's nowhere else to go, a nosy neighbor that everyone had to you know, make sure they treated well because they had influence. Well, the strength of social media is those gatekeepers, those controllers, they're gone. You don't have to know your neighbor. You don't have to know your local church. You have access to thousands and thousands and millions of relationships. But what has that access done? It's weakened the value of human relationship. So when I go through a conflict with someone, I don't have to go through the conflict. I've got people to replace them with. I can replace every pastor, every church, every friendship. People are disposable. And I think we need to look at how the technology itself makes people disposable. If you said, oh, I think people are disposable. No, no, I don't. But if I'd lived in a time where I only had access to 100 people, I would have treated those people, those 100 people better than I treat 100 people now. Because I know behind those 100 people are 100,000 people that I can also connect to in some pretty meaningful way. So the strength is we can connect to more people. The weaknesses, we can connect with more people. And it's keeping us from valuing these essential relationships are going through conflict. So I would think that would be the biggest thing that really got my eyes open 
to why we're struggling and why we're divisive and why we're not reconciling and bringing peacemaking into the mix. Well, this is the Why Me Project podcast, so we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about any Why Me moments that you've experienced in your life. I love that title, by the way, and I'm so glad you guys do that. And just thank you for providing that opportunity, because I think the biggest thing that leads to uh, I've experienced a lot of loss recently. People I've loved have uh, suicide has taken their life and uh, everybody gets to these terrible places. And then in that, this isolation where you're like, is, you know, it's that alone, the terror, those sorts of things. And um, I'm sure you've seen that with people where they're in the pit and there's, there's no way out. Mm. And for me, I was thinking so many of my, my why me moments were, I was in the pit. I felt weak. I didn't know what to do. And Christ became enough. And it wasn't a promise of some future reward. It was just, I'm with you. And that's enough. I have in the book, I talk about my testimonies. I got, I got really sick as a kid. Uh, this was in ninth grade. It was for us, that was middle school, the last year of middle school. And I just got sick. I missed like 90 days of school. I was in the hospital hospital on and off for 60 days. They didn't know what was wrong with me. And, you know, I lost my friends. I was in sports and I couldn't play sports. I couldn't do all the things I wanted to do. And, you know, this is middle school. What's the deal? But, you know, in middle school, middle school, that was like so important. I can remember memories from middle school more than I can hold decades of my life. You know, it was everything. And I got to that point. I remember one night where I was just lying up in bed and I realized no one's thinking about me. My parents love me, but they can't be thinking about me. They're asleep. No one. I'm alone. And, and I, I knew that. I knew I was alone and I knew that no one could be enough for me. And the things you don't want to talk about as a middle schooler and you're coughing and hacking and, and I didn't know what to do. And I remember praying to the Lord this prayer. I said, I know you're real, but if you're real, you know, as I said, my testimony, I've always believed in Jesus, but I know you're real. But if you're real, could you make yourself known to me? And um, the peace of God just came over me. And I knew I'd never be alone. And I knew that whenever there was one, there were always two. He was always in the room with me. And whenever there was two, and I was facing a persecution, there was always three that he'd be with me. And I knew I didn't have to become famous. I didn't have to succeed in life. I didn't have to, whatever those things were, that right now in the pit, when I didn't have anything, I had enough and I didn't have to be afraid. And that has motivated my life that God is strong when I'm weak. Because I think we get afraid of weakness because we're afraid who's going to be there. And if I promise you and go, no, there's people who love you. It's like, but they don't love you enough. And there's people who understand, but they don't understand enough. But I truly do believe the one who formed me knows my heart. He's not ashamed of me. He loves me dearly. And in my worst place, he's there to bring me comfort, to bring me hope, um, to bring me his presence. So that has been the fundamental motivation of my life. I don't know if this book will succeed. Writing's difficult, you know that. But the reality is God's with me and he's enough. So everything I do has value in the doing. Whether people like it or not, doesn't matter. It has value in the doing. No one can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So I can take that next step. And that doesn't mean I don't reach those points where I don't feel incredibly alone and sad. And there's been a tough season with COVID. There's, I, I think I'm in that moment right now, like trying to figure out what the church is, how to exist. But what moves me forward is not the promise that, oh, it's all going to get better. The promise is that Christ is enough. And so that would probably be my why me story or why me life. Posting peace, why social media divides us and what we can do about it. 
I saw that he was a doctor, but he cannot write me prescriptions at fairly spiritual on socials, postingpeace.com. Doug, my friend, thank you for taking some time and uh, sharing your heart. Thank you for letting me be here. It was really an honor. Shout out again to Doug for taking some time, sharing his heart. And it's just nice that we can have these continual conversations about things like social media. Yeah, because it is totally impacting our life. We don't really know what the long-term effects will be, but I think if we can have some eyes wide open moments now talking about how do we see it impacting our kids and our lives and what's next, you know, we can really start putting those healthy boundaries now so that down the road, uh, hopefully we mitigate some of those long-term negative effects with it. I feel like because of the COVID and the pandemic and things, we've talked more about how, you know, I still like Holly, but I'm just going to mute her. So we're still mm-hmm. friends, but I don't have to hear her conspiracy theories. I feel like we've only been talking about that chunk of friends, that group of friends over this last year, year and a half. And, and it's unfortunate that we have to uh, have these relationships where, I, oh, by the way, Holly, I still like you. I just don't like some of the things that you say. Yeah, it's kind of an odd conversation, but I would love for these conversations to happen, you know, maybe Zoom wise, you know, or face to face, Mm. because I think by getting an idea as to where someone's coming from can really help create a fuller picture. You know, there's like there's the truth, his truth, her truth, and then the actual truth. Like, I can't remember what that saying is, but um, if we could just start having better conversations and healthy dialogue hopefully wouldn't have to mute people as much sometimes i want to know the truth but i can't handle the truth (laughs) make sure you download on places like apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher soundcloud we got a number of social media sites don't we holly we sure do. You can head to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, soon to be YouTube. And we do want to hear from you. There's a guest that you love, maybe somebody that you want to hear. Also, don't forget to rate and review because that's how we know that we are on the right track and that you are yeah. getting the guests that you want plus the content that you want. So it helps us uh, serve you better. If somebody can do that this week, please, just one rate and review. Give the five stars. You might get five bucks. You probably won't. And uh, it would just be nice. It'd be nice to have an updated one. And uh, you can also check out 2faithstrongtoday.com. Woo-hoo.